Join us this week as we jump back into the second part of the conversation between Deacon Charlie and filmmaker John Popola. If you missed it, be sure to check out part one from last week where the two discussed John's current fatherhood project called Dad Saves America. This week, they talk about faith and its evolution in John's life personally, professionally, and as a father. I like that the church doesn't change very much because it's anchored. And that anchor in times like these with so much change and upheaval, you know, in the absence of that anchor, do you even know if you're moving? Next thing you know, you're really way out to sea and you didn't even you notice. You didn't even know it. You've drifted. Oh, yeah. So I, I find that to be an incredible source of, of, um, of, um, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a lighthouse on, on the rocks. And I can look at it and be like, okay, I know how far away I am from land right now. This is Living the Call. So you mentioned environmentalism a while ago, and we were looking at what environmentalism means in black and brown communities. And what we found is while there was all of this great reverence for, um, you know, ancestry and the protection and stewardship of the world and customs and traditions and things like that, the idea of environmentalism had significantly limited uptake in specifically the Latino community. And one of the factors that we looked at was the fact that, well, if you're first-generation immigrant or the kid of immigrants, like, you know, and you're thinking about how do I get to work and how do I keep my kids in school? How do I deal with a neighborhood that might not be the safest place in the world? Ideas of what might be happening to, like, you know, the sockeye salmon in, like, you know, some other place in the world— doesn't necessarily hit you in the same way that it hits somebody else who has a lot of those things already accounted for and maybe can begin to turn their attention to something else that's outside of their immediate kind of domain, right? It was really interesting because it wasn't suggesting that, you know, these communities care less about drinking water or air or whatever it was. It was just the context of that experience was very different. And by virtue of that had different they were just doing different things, you know, and I can see that somewhat here. The reality about anxiety is, and this is somebody far wiser than me told me this, but anxiety is like the disease of the future. It's future thinking, right? If you're thinking about what comes next and you're worried about what comes next, it leads to anxiety. If you're equally disposed to the past, you're prone to depression. Like, oh, it's gone. I can't change it. I should have done this. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. That leads you to depression what may or may not happen leads you to anxiety, right? So it's like uh, this, it doesn't surprise me to hear that stat that you say. It's like, well, we're constantly, we're taking everything today and in the past is good. Now we're just worried about what comes in the future. That creates a lot of this sense of anxiety and, and, you know, and and other, those challenges that might lead someone to those kind of uh, situations. Well, I think, man, there's so many great things you, you were saying there. I mean, one, to put my econ geek hat on for a little bit, I would actually say, yes, it is the case that poorer people don't care about the environment as Mm. much. And of course they don't and they shouldn't because if you're struggling to feed your family, um, that should be more important. And there's actually an economist, Kuznets, who charted a curve. And he basically said, uh, concern for the environment rises with income. So you you could look at it through Maslow's hierarchy, if you will. Okay. I'm worried about feeding my 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 young children today. I don't care about the polar bears. Okay, no, now I'm not worried about feeding my kids. Now I'm just worried about making sure that we can deal with an adverse outcome like, you know, the, somebody crashes our car and we have unex, unexpected bills that we have to pay. Okay, once we, once you get to like, there's kind of this somewhat magic number of around $75,000, $100,000 a year as a household where, where additional dollars of income – this is in the United States, although you can adjust it for the globe. Doesn't produce a lot of extra like happiness in surveys. Sure. Inflection point. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a, like what, whether to the extent that that's true, and it's not, not things like that can never be perfectly true. Survey data, people lie on surveys. It's not perfect. But what it points to is we have a hierarchy of values that are priorities. And if you want people on this planet to care about the environment, you need to get them rich. Mm. You need to get them rich. There's 2 billion people in this planet living on less than $2 a day right now. Now that's way down, right? 
So nobody knows this. Nobody. This is an example of like one of the things we talk about on Dad Saves America actually quite a bit. Because at first it's like, well, what does that have to do with being a dad? Well, a big source of this anxiety our kids are facing is this sort of eco-apocalyptics. And again, makes sense. Religion's in the decline. But you know what? Man, that— that last book in the Bible with the fire and the hellstone, sure. yeah. <laughs> that's a big seller. Yeah. So we just got to- Eschatology. <laughs> that's the, the end, end times. End times stuff always sells. You know, so we have, uh, there was a landmark survey done of over 10,000 young people between the ages of, I think it was 10 and 24, 10 and 26. A majority were, in, were saying that they encountered anxiety or, or thoughts related to climate change in the environment on a daily basis. Really? Some polls of Gen Z have them in near minor, my majorities stating that they don't want to have kids because they're worried about the environment. Oh, sure. I could see that. This is all BS. Mm-hmm. We are living in the best time for humanity ever on planet Earth. In the past few decades, poverty has fallen globally in ways that are literally shocking if you cared about global poverty and knew anything about it. Like you don't have to go that far back for 40% of the population to be living on less than $2 a day adjusted for inflation. Today it's below 9%. Now it's going to probably tick up with what's happening with food and grain and inflation and all kinds of stuff. But that's still ultimately, I believe going to be a temporary blip in a trajectory of human progress that is extraordinary. And if you knew about that, you would not feel anxiety about the the future path of humanity. You certainly wouldn't accept as anything other than lunacy the notion that we might all be dead in 10 or 12 years or whatever the clock. Ooh. I don't know when this clock started. It keeps shifting because it's kind of baloney. There's no IPCC report saying that that's happened. So the like reality actually has an optimistic bias if you think about just human flourishing in material terms. And that's and so what that leaves us with is like the second order problem. So first, do you know that? Because if you do, you're going to be in a lot better shape. Then we confront that even in spite of that, these spiritual holes aren't necessarily correlating with that. In Mm. fact, I think this is the next human evolutionary wave in a way. We are on a path to conquer poverty. We have almost conquered hunger on planet earth almost um but we now have this gap opening in our hearts for meaning and i mean kind of in a related example you know suicide rates go down during times of war yeah it's common, weird common enemy something to strive for it's, it's you know it's bizarre so that so we're sort of this fallen creature that learns by burning our hand on the stove and if you think, well, we can just make the world safe enough that you don't ever need to touch a hot stove, the result isn't resilience and empowerment. The result is fragility. And we turn our kids from these resilient beings to these precious little teacups that'll shatter if you don't like hold them just right. And so I think that the I see this stuff all super connected. It super is. Yeah. And um and and there's macro things and there's micro things. And it's like, yes. Let your kid walk to school, you know, you know, have your kid get a job. Like my son, um, he's working at public works this summer and he was helping with clearing out an abandoned homeless encampment. And it's like, you know what? Nothing makes me prouder than knowing that my son took some time to like clean up human urine. I know that sounds crazy. No, character building. But it's like you need- On overdrive. and, And to empathize with like, well, what are the circumstances of this human being? That's here. Like that, that exposure, like we are an exposure creature. We learn through exposure, like exposure therapy or, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is like the proven way to overcome things like PTSD. I remember joking with friends of mine. We have, we have five kids. I remember joking that when I, you know, when you have your first kid, you're just obsessed about your child and trying to protect everything. And, you know, you got like a little plastic thing over all the outlets and every corner has a little foam thing <laughs> and you've childproofed everything and you can barely make it through your own house because of all the gizmos that you've attached. And then by the time your third kid rolls around, you're letting them juggle knives. You know what I mean? It's like 
But part of that is, yeah, it gets harder maybe in some cases the more kids you have. Another part of it is a recognition that that approach to like sort of, you know, childproof everything, at least in our case, and not just us, doesn't lead you to the kind of outcomes that you actually, you know, anticipated and thought about. I also think that going back to this idea of eradication of world hunger or poverty, I also think that it forces us to kind of shift some of the definitions of what this stuff is. So, for example— I've said this before too, but um, it, it always struck me that Mother Teresa, when she came and visited the United States, famously said that she'd never been to a poor country, you know? And so who is really poor? Who is really, you know, Pope Francis talks about the people, the, the, you know, being at the margins, like the outliers, serving the outliers. Well, the, the margins in Calcutta are not the margins in L.A., Right. The margins in L.A. might be that person who's living in Malibu on a 27 acre, you know, uh, compound that is like, you know, on all kinds of prescription medication out of their mind with morbid depression and like just cannot stand to live. Yeah. Despite the fact that they have every single creature comfort known to man. Nevertheless, right from a Christian perspective, that's a soul. That's one of God's kids. And that person also deserves the type of um, uh you know, prosperity, not necessarily wealth, but prosperity that comes from being a child of God and they don't have it. So I'm saying, so like as we yeah. eradicate world hunger and as we eradicate poverty, which I, I believe your stats and I think we can get there, it, it kind of shifts the definition a little bit because I look around and I see a lot of people with a ton of material stuff that to me still seem real poor. Oh, no question about it. I mean, I, again, I think that, um, I think that anxiety and depression we ha are wealth diseases, mm. uh, you know, when they happen at this scale. And it is – and there are some thinkers um, who really question in a more fundamental – I mean, you're asking a fundamental question. And there are some who would say um, all this material pro progress isn't really progress of any kind. It's kind of illusory progress. I think that – and there is truth in that. And I think it's – you could even – I'll even credit give, – give credit where credit's due in this, to those who look to um, – you know, there's this sort of naturalistic obsession we have. Like, you know, whether it's – whether you think about like Hobbes versus Rousseau or, you know, people painting themselves blue because of the Avatar movies or the belief that uh, – you know, Native Americans and indigenous peoples have some inherent betterness than us right. because they were more connected to the land. And then you dig up their fossils and like 80% of them have blunt force trauma marks. <laughs> it's like, well, it's whacked over that people are people. Yeah. But I, there is, a, I think alienation is a real thing. And I think that um, this is sort of the new margin of struggle in a, in a world of, material abundance and we're not all the way there we have people i mean gosh you know you said like people you know la is different than calcutta but i guess it depends on which street you're on that's what i mean <laughs> that's exactly what i mean um yeah this is the hard part and we haven't um we 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 haven't been here before in 2009 i went to africa for the first time uh and i went to west africa specifically to the country of ghana and in order to get there, I flew through London. So flew from here to London, Heathrow, Terminal 5, super luxurious terminal. And, you know, it's got the whole London vibe. I go and I spend two weeks in Ghana, like, you know, red dirt under your feet. Uh, I mean, staying in tiny little homes and, you know, meeting with people who are economically obviously very poor, but also meeting with the people that had a great spirit, a lot of joy, super familial uh, just really great people. Had a great time. Flying back from Ghana, I had to go back through London. And I remember hitting London. And it was like a three-hour layover or something crazy. And looking around and feeling so completely depressed from that experience of coming back and seeing. This is the first time where I can tell you as many places as I've visited. I used to always come back and go like, man, I'm so grateful for the things that I have here. This is the first time that I came back going, man, it's amazing how much we lack here hmm. from that experience. 
because it kind of forced me to reframe a little bit what yeah. this idea was. And look, I was going through some stuff myself and I was kind of where you were at Viacom, like rising the corporate ladder and trying to get, put the next rung forward and kind of coming up empty on a lot of cases. And my kids were really young. And so I was going through a lot of different things, but I do think that the more advanced we get in these areas, the more prosperous we become, the more we're able to eradicate these global ills. I do think that we have to just shift a little bit of our, our definitions of what these things actually mean, because I, I still don't feel that that gets us to the finish line, even if we were to eradicate world hunger or do anything. And that's really the, it's the background of my faith is, is this sense that there is something well beyond what we're able to do here, no matter how successful we are. You know, I'm processing that because it's 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 such a powerful experience to have. It's so fortunate when you can step out of your reality and get that chance to like hit the, ha, have your brain and your and your body like physically get a, have a reset button. Um, the pursuit of again, I'll, I'll wear an econ geek hat. Positional goods, fame, success, notoriety. They, we we. We actually scientifically know that those don't work. They don't work. They don't make us happy. Um, if you want to find a really depressed group of people, look for former, look for people who've won the lottery. Oh, like they, you read about famous they're, stories. They're a disaster. There's this notion of sort of reverting, reverting to the mean, you know, uh, events. And again, here I'm going to borrow from, Arthur Brooks, because he's done an incredible work on this. Um, you know, the the climbing of the ladder um, doesn't get you there. It, it's not to say there's no value in climbing ladders or having aspirations or being um, ambitious. I think it's great. Like, I'm an ambitious guy. I'm always building stuff. Um, but But if you think you're going to get happy and find peace— Gosh, just, you know what? Find the most successful person you know and ask them about it. And ask them what it felt like to like get to that thing they thought was going to be the it. Mm. If I can just Sure. If I can just if I can just make this much money on my next project, I'll be set. If I can just do this thing here, I'll be golden. Like it it just doesn't work. Mm. It's such a mirage. It is. And and so then you have to say, well, then why should I pursue stuff? Shouldn't I just like sit around on them? Are you saying like go be like a Zen monk? And I, no, I think it's a question of understanding that there's a place for everything and everything has its place. <laughs> and, you know. Well, I think there's also a difference between non-action and inaction, right? In other words, you could yeah, sit well, around but, on a couch and, you know, just you know, basically Netflix and chill for the rest of your life. That's inaction. Non-action of the kind like a monk might do is a, is a bit of a, of a, of a different thing. But I think your, your point is well taken. It's not necessarily that desiring things, desiring progress, desire, desiring good things for your family or whatever, that is a good, that is a noble thing. But it's what value do you place on that thing that sets the sort of internal compass, right? Um, and if it is the end-all be-all, you'll find when you get to that next incremental step— and you arrive, kind of what we were talking about earlier, you're still going to have some level of dissatisfaction, which I guess is borne out by the numbers you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's one of these – it's really difficult because it's not something that um, – there's no easy answer for this. I think that it appears to be the case, and I would certainly say this is true personally, um, that if you have faith – if you have have a real community, you have multiple people that have th where you have thick connections with them, not just like, oh, I go to the office, I see Bob, we talk about office stuff. I never see Bob outside of that context. That's not, you know, you need you need several different connection points to somebody to really have them really be a friend, really be a relationship. Um, you know, family and meaningful work. If you have those things in that balance, you know. And again, this is like Arthur Brooks channeling others. You know, that seems to work. Mm. When you look at, well, who's the happiest? Who reports being happy? They have those things. And even so, 
we are built to never quite be satisfied. Yeah. And there's, I don't, you know, so it's, it's, I still struggle with this in a very real way. I go through giant ups and downs depending on how, um, you know, and we're, we're, we're really only two years into this new emergent order. So the, our, our, our organization is called Emergent Order Foundation. And it's a, it's a new organization after running an, a, a production company slash creative agency for 10 years of uh, called Emergent Order. And that entrepreneurial thing is, of a, is a particular kind of like engine. Oh, yeah. That And I know you get this. I totally get it. And it's like there's never – you never get through your to-do list and um, and there's just booms and busts that happen and the to, all the time. And then the never getting through the to-do list is itself a little bit of a rush in a way too, right? It's like, yeah, 100%. I get it. I'm constantly moving. I'm constantly busy. I got meetings, meetings, meetings. And, and some great deal or project or partnership can kind of set the tone for a period of time. Yeah. And in the absence of that, you know, a lot of our sense of worth and value and everything can also be impacted. Which is the trade-off, right? In the corporate world, you have some of that sort of taken out of the equation because you show up to work, you do a, bit, a good bit of work, you get your review, you get your raise, you get your options, whatever it is, and, you know, you kind of go about your business. In the entrepreneurial life, those sort of like that infrastructure is not necessarily laid the same way. So you kind of have to, you know, you rely more heavily maybe on the ups and downs. Oh, and it's, I mean, the funny thing is, is that I know I'd make probably two or three times as much if I'd stayed on the corporate track and I wouldn't trade Either this world I. for that. Well, I'm a hell of a lot healthier now than I was when I was doing the whole corporate thing. I mean, I was like, you know, I was a mess. <laughs> Insomniac, anxiety, you know, the occasional emergency room visit with like pancreatitis or something weird that came out of nowhere. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, it turns out your body responds to a lot of that kind of stress and that grind and the sort of posturing and positioning. There's like infinite value for me. Other people can be very happy in those settings. But for me to kind of be on my own doing this and having to deal with the ebbs and flows of this life, which is very different. Well, I think it comes back to that that notion of agency because that's something that you and I both get to experience a fair measure of. You know, we we are running something. And so we get to make a lot of choices. We also get to make a lot of mistakes. No question. No question. <laughs> and our choices impact like other people whose payroll depends on us. And so that is a unique stressor. Um, but I think that, again, I, I think about this, this sense of, um, how we grow through exposure and, you know, talking about the entrepreneurial experience when we were right, like coming into the third year of emergent order, this would have been like 2014, we had a couple projects fall through and I was looking at the spreadsheet and I was like, oh my gosh, we have like. And they hurt when those things fall through in a way, don't oh. they? Hurts me. Like, like, well, it, it hurts in a multitude of ways. Well, economically, yeah. it hurts, but I'm sure. saying, like, you know, it's like, damn, it's like that's like my child, and it didn't, no, it didn't happen. One hundred percent. But, but, but in this particular instance, it was like, oh wow, like we've only got like two months of runway. runway. And I remember going to bed and feeling like somebody was sitting on my chest. Oh yeah. <laughs> 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 a non, a not inconsequential man was sitting yeah. on my chest every night, to helping me like make sure I didn't. I knew he was there, and um, the interesting thing that's happened now, now that it's more than ten years of doing this kind of thing, is I've been in situations that were much more pressurized than that since, and I sleep like a baby, mm -hmm. and I think this speaks to the growth mindset, is that. When you survive the thing, it makes you stronger, you know? Nietzsche sticks was and, right about some things. Yeah. yeah. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. In fact, you know, my bones themselves will get stronger, actually. It's true. So that is something that, to you know, again, at the personal level and as a, as a dad, like, you need to be... You need to be seeking out those experiences that you want to try if you're going to – even if they're going to break you a little bit because they're going to make you stronger in the process. And you need to make sure that your kids are getting as much of that as they can mm. because this world's change rate is increasing. So that cushy corporate job thing 
you know, I'm not even sure that there's more stability in that environment. Because there isn't. Look at all the press lately. I mean, it's crazy. White collar is like the death knell anymore. At least that's what the, all the economists, well, not all the economists, a lot of people are looking at and saying like, hey, this doesn't look really good for white collar America. There's a lot of fluff in, <laughs> a lot of fluff in those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you in know, those the, ranks. The mark, the, the uh, uh, you know, we're here in, in Los Angeles and it's like you look at that Netflix share price and, um, well, <laughs> interesting time to start reevaluating like who who do we really need? What what really is the thing we should be doing? Oh yeah. And so you, all of a sudden you're in a different universe. By the way, I love it when um kind of pop cultural references have a biblical backing. So like this idea of you know breaking when you get broken, you get stronger, right? That is something, first of all, there's lots of other examples in the natural world where that's true. The immune system, yeah. Fitness is one. The immune system, fitness is one, right? Somebody gets muscle tone and definition by literally snapping the fibers of muscle and having them grow back in a way they're superimposed on one another rather than connected this way, and that creates mass and density. But it's also like a super, um, you know, biblical principle in the sense that, you know, in Scripture it says that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies— Right, nothing. You know, this was Jesus foretelling his own crucifixion. But from from that breaking can come great growth. I mean, that is like literally woven into all of creation, and you see it reflected in in, in matters of faith. Which is, and by the way, no worries on this because it's probably going to be a two parter. But my last subject that I want to chat with you about before we get to wait what, which is our last segment, is faith and where that factors into. Dad Says America, or just this whole idea of being a dad, uh, masculinity, et cetera, and, or any of our ills that we've been talking about on the, on the show so far. Like, where is that for you? Or maybe how did it affect your particular walk? You know, you talked about your son being born and you had this sort of thunderclap moment of realizing this is what importance looks like. Everything else faded. Did the idea of God fade in or religion or faith or, you know, how, how would you put it? So my faith is complicated because like, like we were talking about way earlier, you know, my, my like headiness is at war with it in, in a certain respect, mm. you know, um, because faith involves a leap. It involves, it involves, um, and especially as a Catholic, because, you know, Catholicism has, is so rich with, um, Mysticism, frankly. Sure. You know, the Eucharist as the body of Christ. And Can't not, get more mystical than that. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's not, no, no, it's not like, it's not a metaphor. No, no, it is the body of Christ. Try explaining that to Tim Cook or somebody like that. You know what I mean? You, you, you'll, you'll run right into the uh, the limits of, uh, of mysticism in the everyday. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing when you are someone who's inclined to want to take things apart understand systems and and have philosophical debates um and and so i my entry points into my into my faith start with my family and and actually when i say my family i mean actually like my family heritage so my um on my dad's side in particular my 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 grandfather and my my grandmother who was actually my dad's stepmom because his biological mom died when he was five years old of rheumatic fever. Um, they were, they were deeply connected to, uh, to the church, like literally to the church. Like my, my grandfather had been like noted by, uh, um, knighted by Pope John Paul oh, wow. uh, for his work, his pro-life work, frankly, for, uh, he, he was a um, president of a Catholic doctors association and was very outspoken about, about, um, about abortion, which obviously is very much in the news and is very, very <laughs> polarizing for people. Um, but um, so I'm proud of that tradition. I embrace that tradition. And I had a moment to really make a choice about that because, you know, I, there was a time when I was in a relationship that had, you know, with someone who was an Orthodox Jew. And asked, said, if we are going to continue to have a relationship, you're going to need to contemplate converting to Judaism. And I have a lot of, um, a lot of my best friends are actually Orthodox Jews and are, 
and and I have a lot of deep respect for Judaism and and for the culture of 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 Judaism for the um for everything. I mean, it's like you want to if you want to find like okay, let me I'm going to pick a random population of people to put in a room with the goal of finding the smartest, most interesting people I can. <laughs> you could do worse than just picking a random assortment of Ashkenazi Jews. Mm. And maybe that's an inflammatory statement. I don't know. It's praising though. But it's the it is my experience, especially as like a as a someone who spent over a decade in New York City. And I and people often think I'm Jewish too. Like I look I, I tend to people tend to think I'm Jewish more than anything else, just by my intonations and my looks and whatnot. Well, according to twenty three and me, I'm like two percent Ashkenazi. So Yeah, so you know We all have some of that diaspora, <laughs> I guess. Well, and it, yeah, I mean I'm like ninety three percent like Southern Europe, Italy, and then and then Horn of Africa is like the other seven percent, like uh yeah, Middle East, that yeah. whole deal. Yeah. So, you know, that's the Sicilian. That's the extended Sicilian part. Some sailors in your background, probably. <laughs> so, so there's been this familial and this cultural inculcation in my religion of Catholicism. But what's happened really in the past couple of years, and this is – this is infused in some of the work we're doing with Dad Saves America only by virtue of personal anecdote. You know, it, we're not building a, a channel that's meant and a, meant to be explicitly religious. Like, if you don't believe in God, you can still be an awesome dad, and I want to talk to you, and I want to encourage you to see the heroic nature of your of your role as being a dad. Um, but we do explicitly actually talk about God. We ask our guests about their faith. Because I think it's it's it, this is a new thing for me to actually integrate into work life in this way. Oh yeah, and it's kind of exhilarating because um, because I do feel called for it, and I feel like I spent I spent a decade actually working on these like videos and things about economics and. It's very sterile as a discipline, as a as a mindset. It's like it's it's not math because it's really about human psychology and, and incentives and behavior. It's you know I think economics properly understood is a way of navigating the material world to get the most out of life. That's the right way to think. I think about what economics actually is trying to help you get across. Oh, if I choose this, I don't get to choose that. That's called a trade off. That's an opportunity cost. These are basic things that people don't seem to understand. Like oh. Let's have free college. It's like there's no such thing as free college. Like, are you not paying the teachers? Who's, where'd you get the money for the teachers? <laughs> what is this free talk? It's like, it's in the, our, our conversations about some of this stuff are so infantile. So I've spent a lot of energy thinking about stuff like that. And, you know, what I've realized, though, is that there's just um, there's just a limit to how much you can get out of any of that. There's only so much that we can find answers for here. Mm. And maybe my God and my faith is a God of the gaps, the unknown. And the, but uh, that might be the best I've got right now. Mm -hmm. If I really like, really like think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I just can't ignore what's wrong with the world now. Like, especially in light of all the optimistic stuff. All no the question. We should be styling. It should be awesome. Yeah. It's like, we're in a, we're, we're like, and I know this is like, oh, like rich white people problems. Like, oh, my, my biggest concern is like, how much of an upgrade is the iPhone 14 Pro Max going to be compared to the 13 Pro Max? Because, you know, uh, like that's the, that's the thing that we're going to talk about, you know, come September. Um, but there's there's all like there's all this amazing stuff happening and yet this other area of life when it atrophies like makes all of that just feel like what can drive people to suicide in today's america really yeah 
There's a line from the Second Vatican Council, one of the documents in the Second Vatican Council, that says that in the absence of God, man becomes incomprehensible to himself. That's a really powerful statement. And I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that, um, and again, I say I think, you know, with intention, because it is I think. I, I, there, some of this I feel, a lot of it I think. And I don't – here's maybe the most philosophically challenging thing that, that I've been going through. So I, you know, I, I tend to call myself a libertarian. And so that's really a, fundamentally like a political philosophy, if you will. It's a, it's a philosophy who's, that's really quite simple. It simply says we should have a society with as little violence as possible. Mm. So – if you want me to do something, you have to convince me to do it. You can't force me to do it. Mm -hmm. And I should be able to do whatever the heck I want so long as I don't hurt somebody, hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. Um, taken to its extreme, it suggests anarchy, literally, like no, as in no acrons, as in no leaders. Um, so let's – Live in that space for a second. Okay, I can do whatever I want so long as I don't like physically hurt someone else or aggress against them in some way or threaten force. Well, that might be – so that's my is factor. All right, but what ought I do now? We've introduced a whole new uh, terminology into the equation though. The moment you say ought or should, yeah, you're dealing in a different realm. And I don't – see guidance for that absent the soul. Yeah. Because here's the thing that I can see with my eyes in the world of the is, I can see there's people who are stronger than others and that can, and that can and do use their strength to abuse others, to steal, to hurt, to, 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 to oppress. Like that's a fact. I can see that people are not equal there's people way smarter than me. There's people not as smart as me. Stronger, weaker, faster, slower, better looking, uglier. Like equality in humans is not a thing that you could arrive at if you were an alien and arrived on the planet and didn't know anything and right. just were like, let's assess this uh, species here. It's like, oh, well, there's this distribution of characteristics and – a lot, some of them look a little power law-like and some of them don't. Like, okay, they're pretty average height, but wow, their earnings potential varies wildly. <laughs> you know? Like, some of these people can entertain billions by throwing balls around. And, and others, no one seems to care about what they make no matter how hard they try. <laughs> so you don't get a quality out of the is- um, and, and it's not clear how you get meaning out of the is. The other thing that the is doesn't cover, and maybe even is a weakness or a, uh, a limit to libertarianism, and I'm not singling it out, maybe it applies to other uh, forms of thinking in this regard, is that if the barometer is I can do all things so long as they don't physically hurt somebody else, Someone who is consensual in a relationship or in a situation by their very nature is agreeing to participate in that process. Yep. And the limitation of that, if it's the only barometer that I have, is that it doesn't account for the fact that people can be, that a person can be exploited even with their consent. In other words, I'm not, you could say, well, it's not hurting anybody because I can prove that party A and party B are consensually in this thing, so they're not being hurt. But it doesn't solve for the fact that in some cases someone can be exploited even with their consent. You talked about human trafficking at the very top of this. That's a perfect example. In some absurd percentage of human trafficking, victims consent to being trafficked. So it's not hurting anybody in the sort of transactional sense, but it nevertheless has a huge moral impact. Yeah, a, uh, a good friend of mine, he's an economist at Duke, um, Mike Munger. He, he coined a term that I don't think has gotten broad adoption, but it's meant to address this particular point. He call, so, so consent is voluntary, but he, he says there's a, a sort of higher bar we need 
and he calls it you voluntary, like EU voluntary. Mm. And that is to say, okay, I'm starving in the desert. You show up with you show up with the water that will save my life. And I agree to be your indentured servant for five years in exchange for the water. Now, I don't have to take the water. You don't have to give me the water. It is a voluntary exchange, but the the um the cost and opportunity differential here is so vast that it's not of the same kind mm-hmm. as I could buy an iPhone, I could buy a Samsung, I could work for you or I could work for you. Um, oh, I don't want to work for you anymore. I don't want you to work for me anymore. Like that's more like normal. Yeah. That's like – those are, are those are you voluntary. Those mm-hmm. are like, okay, I – the stakes of my decision. So if you're a young woman whose family has abandoned her um, – you know, you're 13, you've been kicked out of your house, you're on the street. And someone approaches you with the opportunity to make money. Place to stay. A place to stay. They don't chain you up. You're free to go if you wish. Um, But you're going to use your body to make a living. And, uh, you know, that's a categorically different thing than do you want to keep working at Starbucks? I would say so. And then how we should judge that activity is where I think, again, faith and moral frameworks come in. Is it is it good to do that? I mean, again, as a libertarian, I'm like, you know, I'm not especially worried about whether or not, like, I don't know that banning those things makes them better. Like, even the legal stuff around abortion, I, you know, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's, act, it's actually... Even as a Catholic who I am, I will say this, I am like deeply, deeply pro-life. But the actual like what's the legal environment here, I, I can understand the arguments on both on, – on, on several sides of this. Mm. Should you be able to like go to the hospital and you were going to give birth but instead you just – give birth into a trash can because it's legal like in New York like no i think well now you're killing a baby i'm sorry but you know the the range of things here is really co- complicated and com- and um and i think that is there's no easy answers like this mm. is the grapple of hum- of like the human condition like what should we do how how should we construct things to bind us and constrain our freedoms for our own good. Mm. I mean, I think about think about marriage. So, um, marriage is, rest- is a voluntary restriction of your freedom. You opt in to a contract with another person that says you're gonna forego some things that you would probably like to do at some point in the future, and you're gonna say, "No, nope, I'm not gonna do that." So that's reduction in your freedom. Yeah, they're certainly one of the byproducts of it. it mm-hmm. You know, it, it, but it's a it's. Although, depending on where you start that dialogue, you could say that is it is it truly a freedom that you have? Because you could say, well, you know, depending on where you're starting from, right? The freedom to go and procreate with an assortment of other people is not necessarily a freedom that you possess in the same way as. You know, I want to breathe in and out and give life to to my extremities. You know what I mean? It's so, th- and also the fact that some people would say, well, a marriage is not as much a contract because contracts are usually between companies or entities or whatever, but it's a covenant between people, right? You're promising to give your life to another person to sacrifice for them. So it could fall also into that category of not just different in kind, but different, I'm sorry, not just different in degree, but different in kind. Like it's kind of like the Starbucks human trafficking example. Some might say that. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of this can just be, can, can, can start to become a, just a question of semantics. So if I'm, you know, when I say freedom in that context, I'm saying strictly in the most selfish version of it. Yeah. Which is the to liberty say, to go and yes, I, do what, yeah. I, you know. Am I free to do what I wish to do sure. absent any constraints? Um, and, you know, there are just lots of instances in which we bind ourselves. Mm. And I think that this is, again, this area where 
the church has got a lot of work put into this stuff. <laughs> tons and tons. It's like, you know what? I could just, I could outsource some of this to people that have um, put a lot of work into it. And I could do worse. You could. You know? So, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to damn with faint praise, but I do, I mean it literally like, you know, I think one of the things, again, this is a very, this is like a very old school Catholic, cradle Catholic way to look at it. But it's like, I like that the church doesn't change very much because it's anchored. And that anchor in times like these with so much change and upheaval, you know, in the absence of that anchor, do you even know if you're moving? Next thing you know, you're really way out to sea and you didn't even you notice. You didn't know it. You've drifted. Oh, yeah. So I, I find that to be an incredible source of, of, um, of, um, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a lighthouse on, on the rocks and I can look at it and be like, okay, I know how far away I am from land right now. And it's nice when it has all those characteristics of stability and kind of having you grounded and being that anchor, but it also makes it oh so much more special when it's also rooted on things that are true. In other words, something could just be anchored and immovable and give you a sense of comfort just because, but the fact that it's also true, you know, adds to that. I've got one final question for you before we get to our last segment. You talked about leaving for your son or for your sons or for our kids, this legacy of, you know, what being a dad is all about and what masculinity is all about. And some of these traits that you talked about is like the sort of master legacy that we want to leave off for our kids. It's not necessarily an inheritance or a car or a house or whatever. It's this. How important is it for you, for your son, that he grow up with a sense of who God is? This is a very personal question. I, um, it's very important to me, but my actions have not lived up to how much I think it's important to me in, in some domains. In others, it has. So I have not walked the walk of taking him to church or going to church as much as I should if I valued that as much as I want to say I do. So that is a failure on my part. Mm. Um, for multiple reasons, we didn't send him to Catholic school. And so while he's had his baptism, he hasn't had any of the other sacraments yet. And this presents this interesting challenge, which is he's now practically an adult. And so if he's going to go down the road of being a Catholic and being confirmed and, and having the Eucharist and 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 the uh, and and confession and the other sacraments, um, he's going to have to ultimately like uh, agree to that as an as a like a fully functional consenting adult. So he's going to. So I've sort of made it harder for myself because that inculcation period where you can set some defaults, I, I kind of didn't do as much as as like my parents did for me. Now, in some ways, I think. I've had more conversations, more experiences of talking to him about God and about the nature of God. Um, maybe, maybe actually than like my, my dad did with me, actually. Like in a sense, and you know. Even though you may have gone Catholic school and yeah. CCD and all the different things. You okay. know, so that, that, that formal. So I sent – we, my wife and I have sent him to multiple different schools. He went to a Waldorf school. He started off in the Catholic school when we were in Jersey, Our Lady of the Lake. And I didn't – when we moved to Texas, it was, you know, he was going to go into first grade. And we thought about Catholic school. And we opted not to, not because of the Catholic part. That was a good part. It was the traditional part mm. in terms of the structure of the school. Because I, I think that the way education, this is like the second pillar in our Dad Saves America sort of like themes. Um, I think education in this, in this country is root and branch broken. Mm. It's, it's rotten. S sitting young children down for 45 minute stretches to be lectured at was never meant to educate anything. It was about the only lesson that comes out of that is conformity. Sit down, shut up, 
listen to authority. The teacher is the authority. Do what they say. And that's like by design. That goes back to the, the, the inspiration drawn on the Prussian system to try to basically get Pr- Prussian soldiers to not abandon their posts after losing to Napoleon. Like that's literally the source of that. So stuff. the whole modality is just not not the no. right. Yeah, Catholic schools outperform public schools like unilaterally, um, even though they are not that dissimilar in in their style. Um, I think for a whole host of reasons, including the fact that they actually have baked into the cake that the children are like have are God's gift and God's creation, and they try to love the kids for all the problems. And, you know, we didn't talk about like the priest situation and no one talks about the fact that in raw numbers that, you know, the, 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 the sheer volume of like child abuse that happens in the public school dwarfs the Catholic schools, but nobody ever talks about that. Like there's all kinds of stuff. We didn't talk about about that, but um, what he goes to a school now where it's radically Socratic and I, I th- and uh, and so the things we we've always done is we've always prayed before meals to this day. I have said a prayer with him before he goes to bed almost every every single night I am I am home with him since birth through to last night. I say a prayer with him before he goes to bed. Amen. So there's, you know, so I'm not, I'm not a total disaster. <laughs> not at all. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, God's really frugal, right? I mean, he uses all these different ways. And in in a way, I feel like a lot of parents sort of seed some of that uh, religious and spiritual formation to either schools, be they Catholic or otherwise. Um, and even though they might feel good about sending their kid to a Catholic school or something, they're not living or practicing any of the things that you just described. So in some ways— a kid going to school and being formed in that setting and receiving their sacraments may be farther away from a faith experience than what you've just described. I I think I know that that's the case that a lot of people, everybody comes to things differently. Now, the thing that's going to be interesting for, for him, if he's going to ultimately embrace being Catholic, he's certainly, he is Catholic, he's baptized Catholic, is... um. He hasn't come to terms with ritual, like conceptually, like, like what's the point? Like, what is this? What mm-hmm. is this? Sure. Why does this matter? Sure. Why does it matter that you do the same thing over and over again? Like he, he literally doesn't get it. And I say that in like a philosophical sense. He, he questions the value proposition of, of ritual, which <laughs> that's a big one. It is a big one. And he's going to love the answer though. You know, and I think, um, I, I haven't given him an adequate answer, so this is maybe maybe All right, maybe now's the time. You know, if you've it's got not one, why it's not one answer, but it's like you know, <laughs> this is one of those chicken and the egg things because the reality of it is at least one answer to that question ties directly back to theology of who the human person is and the fact that we're both both spirit and matter. And just as a sort of a thumbnail sketch of this point, some people have asked me what I feel about fasting from a spiritual perspective. And my answer to them is that fasting is the way the body prays, right? So mind, spirit prays one way, the body prays through fasting. In a similar way, ritual, standing, kneeling, incense, all of these different things are the ways that we move our physical being in harmony with what's happening spiritually because we're integrated beings. We're not just like electric meat walking around, you know what I mean? And Or we're this spirit soul thing. That's the part God cares about. God made all of it. And he made us in a particular way. So the ritual in one way gives life and gives energy and, and, and sort of movement to that end of our being that is physical so that it can operate in harmony with the rest of who we are. That's at least one part of the answer to that question. The, um, the thing that's so hard is – and this is part of our times, right? You know. It's like, well, mass is boring, Dad. I don't. It's just boring. Mm-hmm. It's just this bunch of it's like this repetitive stuff, and I don't know why you get anything out of it. And the thing is, my answer isn't accessible to him. Yeah, be- and literally, it can't be accessed because a part of what I get out of it is, well, I was raised with this, and this like triggers some some deep ingrained comfort factors 
And actually, I've only begun to try to engage the mass for beyond what it, the, for what it is beyond the comfort of like, yeah. oh yeah, like I you know I did this forever. I associate it with my childhood, which I which I had a good childhood. My parents and my grandparents, and like I I have only not barely scratched the surface of thinking about the mass as something more than that. I mean, in fact, one of the ways that um, I gained a new appreciation for the mass was when my wife and I, you know, traveled around Asia and in Thailand, I heard the the chants of the monks and they sounded exactly like the c- Catholic chants. And it was this like, oh, there's, I know this is like silly and simple, but it was like, oh, wow, there's actually this maybe universal thing that they're doing. For sure. That they're tapping For into sure. with those particular chords and the sound. It's like, it's the same thing. And, um, and that just, that just, it, it was like this tiny little window into, oh, wait, there's some wisdom that got baked into the survival of this ritual that just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not good and mm. doesn't have some power. Because, wow, like they're doing some, there's some stuff happening here. For sure. There's some crazy things too, because as, as we walk the spiritual walk, live the sacramental life, it itself gives energy to the kind of aperture opening so that we can experience things differently too. In other words, so in a way, the answer is inaccessible too because of where he is on his spiritual walk. But interacting with it more opens you up so that you can understand it more so that you can interact with it more. It's like this very virtuous thing. It's like when people, the power of prayer, people say, well, you know, especially in spiritual circles, like, well, you know, have you prayed about it or pray more about it? And in, in some cases it can sound so unsatisfactory, <laughs> right? You want to have like a model, you want to have like a fitness regimen, you want to have like the 12-step program, whatever it is. But the more you pray, the more you understand that it is about prayer. Yeah, there's, um, and again, I think in in a lot of ways, I think there's a lot of, synergy with um buddhist thought i think i think there's a lot of you can bring a buddhist overlay to catholicism catholic thought and practice and find a lot of harmony and like like a lot of harmony and some have done that very famously you know know, thomas merton is one example of that you know who was basically a trappist monk but he towards the end of his life was trying to reconcile zen and buddhism with christianity and, you know, the, the, the sort of pulling in, Buddha, in Buddhism at the sort of ground of all reality and the kind of internal focus and the quieting of the mind and the stillness and all of that to realize that, in fact, w- there is this sort of greater harmony. That's all true. Uh, in the Christian understanding, that harmony is like a person, not a thing. And that's where there's a little bit of a difference. But the kind of, there, there's a lot that there is similar and in common. Well, and I think that the... I brought that up because, as you were saying, the word practice, you know, um, there's such a rich, there's such a richness to that word. And I think that people that do yoga and say their practice, like actually understand that meaning in a proper way. And Mm -hmm. I think, and I actually think that to the extent I'm starting to, you know, make use of the mass for more than comfort, that that's my access point right now is I think of it like, well, this is, this is a practice. It's like yoga. <laughs> Again, like, I'm sorry that I'm probably using some, some like real cheap, <laughs> not at all, not some at real all. cheap think, ways of thinking about this. Um, but I, I mean that in, in that sense of like that, the, the knowledge of the, of like the unconscious, you know, I don't even know what the right, it, it is like another dimension that you're opening a window into, you're opening like a, a like a membrane mm-hmm. to allow to enter by getting into this zone where your body is engaged in a particular way that 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 it isn't accustomed to be, and that recurs. Like exactly, that is there is something really important there, and and Catholic, the Catholic Mass isn't the only one that does that. Um, it but it's like it like that stuff is real, mm. and I think um. I think people understand that, but to actually like tap into it and incorporate it into your life, 
that's another matter. And it's like that's that's the that, that's the stuff that just takes work. It takes practice. <laughs> it does. Well, you can count on uh, my prayers and our prayers for you and for your family and for your continued walk in that practice and everything else that you're up to, man. It's it's really, really cool stuff that you're doing. I think it's, you know, sorely needed. I love the modalities and the ways you're approaching doing it. Uh, and we're happy that you're out there fighting that good fight. And I really appreciate you stopping on the show and having that conversation with us. And and succeeding in a two-parter too, John, by the way, because it's very <laughs> rare to have a two-parter. We actually had one uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so we're going to have another one here so we can kind of parse this out. So thank you very much for well, stopping by. What a privilege. Charlie, um, a privilege it was to have this kind of conversation and to take this time together with you and to explore these things together. It's um, It's meant a lot to me. Thanks, brother. So are you ready to close this out then with Wait What, our final segment? All right, let's do it. All right, so John, I know that you're a bowler. And it seems like a pretty good one from what I understand. Uh, so I thought that this one might be right up your lane, dad joke intended, as early, <laughs> John, as early as the fourth century. In quasi-rites, R-I-T-E-S, rites held in the cloisters of churches, some parishioners helped advance bowling in this country by performing a ritual which involved placing a stick at the end of a runway and rolling a rounded rock toward it, symbolizing the elimination of personal sin. In which country, John, did this strange precursor to bowling take place? Oh, my gosh. Fourth century. Fourth century. I'll give you a hint. It's Europe. Okay. Bowling for sin. For sin. For sin remission. Yeah, basically. I like this. This is a good game. Um, Denmark? Ooh, close. It's Germany. Parishioners place their, I guess it's Kegel, 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 which is an ins- in, an implement most Germans carried around for sport and self self defense at one end of a runway resembling a modern bowling lane, and then the the Kegel was said to represent the heathen, and then a stone was rolled <laughs> at the heathen, and those who successfully toppled them were believed to have. Uh, cleanse themselves from sin. So there you go. Question number one. We're gonna. I'm gonna give you a half point for for getting close All right. geographically. All right. Next question. Multiple choice. John, which of these is false about your hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Is it A? Which is false? Is it A? Philly kicked off all anti-slavery protests in the U.S. Is it B? More than a third of doctors in the U.S. receive some medical training in Philadelphia, or is it C? Philadelphia was the home of the very first electronic computer, which is false about Philadelphia. I think it's C. Incorrect. No, oh. it's actually B. So, which that's false because it actually is one of six. A little slight, slight trick question there. So, one a third of the doctors isn't true. Actually, a lot of doctors for some reason. Because I guess Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania hospital, which was founded by Benjamin Franklin, was America's first hospital. Then in UPenn, there was, which is the first university, had the first medical school. And the Children's Hospital of Philly was the first hospital in the country devoted to kids. Plus, you have the first cancer hospital ever. So you have a lot of medical stuff going on in Philly. But it's actually not quite true that one out of three uh, doctors study there. The correct answer that I'm sorry, that is the false one is is B. It is true that um, Philadelphia was the home of the very first electronic computer. Apparently, it was 27 tons, and it was at the University of Pennsylvania in some deal with the U.S. Army in 1945. That was the first computer, at least electronic one, uh, that was ever invented. Oh wow! And also true that Philly was the site of the first organized protest against slavery in 1688. Yeah, uh, being anti-slave. Slavery was baked into the fundamentals of uh, the American ethos. Well, there you go. You're guaranteed the last one right, though, John, because there's always a time machine question. <laughs> okay. okay? So this one's just whatever you want. Here's the circumstances. You get to travel back in time to London in the year 1919. Okay. There you meet a 19-year-old, happens to be 19 as well, 19-year-old would-be engineer by the name of Alfred Hitchcock the now noted filmmaker and master of surprise of 20th century cinema. The young Albert, who you know from history, was born Catholic, educated by Jesuits, has recently started a creative writing class. This class will eventually lead him into advertising work and ultimately to film. Albert confides in you, John, that he has some appreciation for suspense and crime thrillers and feels a bit of tension between his Catholic upbringing and these subjects. 
He asks you if it's possible to reconcile these intense genres with a Christian view of the world. You pause, take a deep breath, and then give some advice to one of the film world's seminal giants. What, John, do you tell him? Ooh, I know what I tell him. It's a, it's a subject of great debate in our house. And I would say that work is essential because evil is real. And it's important that we confront it in our culture and that we embody it in our art and that we make it grotesque, which he was incredibly good at doing. And macabre, yeah. And, and see it for what it is, see it for its nature. And we can never perfectly do that, but man, if anybody could come close, it was that for Hitchcock. So, uh, yeah, that's what I would tell Well, them. that answer is so good, my friend, that it actually makes up for the other two, so you get a perfect score. <laughs> I get to control the points on this show. But uh, thanks for playing the game. Thanks for stopping by, man. It was really, really great to see you. Welcome to Los Angeles, and, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Thanks, Charlie. Take it easy. And if you're listening to our voice, it's time to subscribe. Please share this episode with a friend or these episodes with a friend since it's a two-parter. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.